Bible. You see, we do a New Testament translation first and foremost. And that means the people are often lacking the Old Testament or any knowledge about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is so critical for a biblical understanding of who God is and how he created the world. He's a person. This is so vital for a Buddhist to grasp that God is a person, that he created the world. It hasn't just existed endlessly, and he's not just a force. That's all established in Genesis. And on top of that, you, under, you begin to understand who Christ is, the Messiah. What does it mean to be the, the sacrificial lamb of God? That's all explained in the Old Testament. But if they've only got the New Testament, they're ripe for false teaching because they're misinterpreting or missing these key things. So these storybooks you have in your hand serve a double purpose. They teach people to read their own language, but they also teach people some of the Old Testament stories that are so vital for building a Christian worldview, that are so important for interpreting the New Testament correctly. These are just on the children's level. What if we did other resources for adults? What if we produced storybooks, Bible videos, commentaries for pastors, doing oral storing with the people? There's a lot of ways that we could help overcome this. Now, oral storing is particularly encouraging for these oral cultures, like the Goga that you just saw, where we get 10 or so people around and we communicate a simple story, a parable of Jesus or a story of the Old Testament in a way that they can memorize. And we pick 30 to 50 key stories throughout the whole Bible so that they get a, a grand view of the Bible in, in 30 to 50 short stories. We help them memorize these stories, and they go and tell 10 more people, and they tell 10 more people. And you have an exponential effect with no technology and no needed training. People naturally do this in their oral cultures. We can do it with the Bible, too. So there's a lot of possibilities to help over by helping them have access to other information about the Bible so that they're correctly interpreting it. What about this barrier? This is an important one that we need to make use of. People don't have accessible forms of the Bible. If we're only doing the Bible in a print format, we're assuming that they have leisure time to sit down and read a book. But many of them are working from sunup till sundown. How can they sit down to read a book? So what if we did this? We, what if we produced audio Bibles? What if we did Bible videos what if we used Bible apps and short gospel tracks? See, many people have a smartphone. This man is a demonstration of that. Everywhere you go in Myanmar, they have a smartphone. Even if they don't have electricity, they'll have a solar panel sitting outside their shack home charging their smartphone. It's just the world we live in today. And we can make use of this. The Internet is the new highway of information. We can be producing resources that everybody can access instantly and cheaply. Another barrier we can overcome is under, understandable key terms. Imagine if you opened up your Bible and it was a bunch of Greek and Hebrew terms sprinkled throughout it. If you were to read a verse with a foreign word in it, you'd likely skip that verse to a, a verse you could read all the words or a chapter where you can read all the words. We don't want people doing that with our Bible, so we want to make sure our, the words we're choosing are understandable to the people. Because when you do a translation from the host language to a, a receptor language, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. It's not like a code, and they have ex equal and exact words that match. You often have, they don't, they, there's no way that they can convey concepts in the New Testament. This is very common, where they don't have words for redemption, sanctification, propitiation. They just don't have ways to convey those concepts in the New Testament. So either we can translate it, uh, a foreign word, say from the Burmese language, and we just put in a foreign Burmese word there, or we invent a new word they've never had before, or we use a long phrase to explain that concept. 
either one, we need to explain why we're doing what we're doing and make sure people know what these words mean. Lest they open up their Bible and it's all foreign to them. So here's ways that we could change this. Producing just simple glossaries in the back of their Bible. Explaining the key important terms. We could be doing visual diagrams with all the foreign terms about the Old Testament and the, the temple and the sacrifice. We could, we could have visuals of that. We could be teaching the pastors to teach their own people what these words are so that when they're prepping for their sermon, they can be aware to explain these words. And then I want to mention two more barriers. Lack of ownership has created dependency on Western Christianity. We need to avoid this. Because if they see us, if they're dependent upon us for everything, they're going to see us as foreigners producing a foreign product about a foreign God. It's going to be a foreign religion. And unbelievers are likely to never embrace Christianity. And the believers that are there are likely to, to rely so heavily on us that when we leave, it collapses and it's gone as soon as we leave. We need to avoid this dependency by, propping, or by encouraging and coaching them to take the leadership positions so that we're not the ones in the front seat, that they're the ones making the decisions, that they're invested with time, personnel, and money. This is why I say we need to only be doing partial funding. We, we can help them in ways, but we should never be taking over all the, the, the project. And we should be encouraging local committees to be making the decisions instead of us. This creates humility on our part. We need to step back and, and check our, our pride at the door. We need to be encouraging them to make decisions. But one more barrier that we need to overcome is sinful behaviors that are common in the pagan culture, especially addiction. Drug addiction is incredibly high in Myanmar because the, the opioids that are, that are grown throughout the world and distributed throughout the world are grown in Myanmar and India. And it's very easy to get addicted to the drugs when you're working the fields. And if you are out of... Many, many of the people are poor substance farmers that just live on a daily wage. And if, they, if there's a crop failure or if there's some problem in their life and they lose their job, you know where they could always get a job? The opioid fields. There's always jobs available at the opioid fields. We need, and, and this is common even among the Christians. On top of this... Pornography is all throughout the country because of how readily accessible the Internet is. And all the people have access to it now. In 2014, only 1% had access to the Internet. And now nearly the entire country does. This comes with benefits, but it also comes with downsides. We can avoid this by encouraging the pastors to be aware of these problems, by giving them good biblical counseling programs, by giving, helping them have a support network for Christians that leave their Buddhist families and lose their job, lose their house, and are kicked out of the village. Where are they going to go if there's no support network for them? They're going to go where there's the only available job, and they're likely to get dragged back down into that sinful culture. So they, there needs to be a support network there of Christians that are helping each other. There needs to be sustained, suitable work for them. This is, this is a, a difficult problem that's not just easily fixed. We have it in America, and we have it everywhere in the world. And we need to be aware of how we can help use Bible products to help the people see how God addresses their human needs that they have on a daily basis. That the Bible isn't just for Sundays. It's for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's throughout, for, throughout the whole week. That the Bible applies to every area of their life, including these, these difficult areas. So what can we do to encourage people to engage with the Bible. 
How will we specifically be doing this? Let me share with you four ways that we're going to be focusing on to help the people. We're, our goal is to live in Yangon, as I mentioned, but to bridge out into these local villages, to live among them and do a linguistic analysis. We want to first start with asking them questions. Where are the greatest barriers that hinder you from growing or accessing the Bible? We need to know from them and hear from them first before we just assume what they need. We need to be doing this analysis. This is just simply building relationships with the pastors and living among them for an extended period of time. Secondly, we need to be training the local pastors. We don't want to be doing church planting because there are qualified, good, godly men that can do this. So we need to be encouraging and training them to do this work and equipping them. But we also need to be developing biblical resources for the people. We want them to be like the Bereans in Acts that your church is named after, that they search the scriptures daily to see if these things be so. We want them to be able to have that ability to search the scriptures for themselves to see if what they're being taught is accurate and biblical. Right now, many, many people rely on a single man to interpret the Bible for them. Does that sound familiar with the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages? They're ripe for false teaching. In fact, the Baptist denomination is the largest denomination in Myanmar, and it's the most liberal denomination. They don't preach the gospel. They, don't, they deny the inspiration of Scripture, and they don't even preach Jesus' divinity. So, Hung Kim and others, gospel-preaching churches, have to distinguish themselves from the other Baptist churches by putting an adjective in front of their name. As, um, there's Revival Baptist churches. There's Grace Baptist churches. There's all, there's, they, they can't just go by the name Baptist Church because that would imply that they're a liberal church. That's just how common it is in Myanmar. So we need to be producing biblical research so people know that what they're being taught is biblical and accurate, that they can look back at the Bible and say, yes, what he said this morning is in the Bible. And then finally, we want to be providing feedback back to the translation teams and getting them information about how the translations are received so that we know that our translations are as natural and clear as possible. When we do a translation, we do two trial editions before we print the Bible. We do a gospel and an epistle. And in the back, we have a survey. We ask people, what's confusing? What can we do better? Right now, nobody's collecting those surveys. Nobody is giving, uh, collecting them and giving them to us. So we're producing the Bibles without enough information. But we need to, we, we'll be collecting these surveys and helping make sure our Bibles are not confusing. From the child to the adult, we want them to understand their Bible. So really, in short, our goal is strategic church development. Among these less reached tribes, these tribes where there is a, gr a greater Christian presence, so that by growing them, that these churches are thriving, they can go and reach non-reached people groups in Myanmar. I would encourage you to sign up for our email updates or web visit our website at handstoheartsasia.org or follow us on Facebook. And please, please pray for us. We want to be there by February so that we can begin learning the language as soon as possible. Now we have a few minutes... If you have any questions, I'd love to answer any. Yes, in the back. Right.
What are some of the contrasts that they need to hear and understand? They need to understand that God is a person that can be known. He's a personal God. He's not just a force. So when you say the phrase, Jesus loves you in America, most of the time people understand what you mean, even if they disregard it. But in Buddhism, they, they're not going to understand it. And in fact, it'll be a hindrance and it'll be a negative effect because they're going to hear that phrase and say, whoever Jesus is, um, he's probably not God if he's a person. And if he loves us and he loves the world, then he's probably the reason the world is the way it is today because um, the more you're attached to the world, the more suffering there is in the world. So you have to, in the Buddhist view, you have to release attachment and not care and not love, and then you'll reach nirvana quicker. So Jesus is maybe even the problem for our sin if he loves the world. So you have to back way up, and they have to first understand who God is, that he's a person. So you got to start in Genesis 2, 3 is so important. And then you have to find another way to convey the, uh, the, the love of Jesus and his sacrificial death. Um, you can turn toward... Um, popular stories that they would understand and connect with and value as a comparison, not as, not as Bible, but one story in particular I'm thinking of. They have a story about this, this empire, this, this king in the empire who is ex- extremely rageful against this, a particular people group in Myanmar. And this was centuries ago. This is a myth. And they said that this king was so rageful he was about to destroy the, the entire population of this people group except a wise teacher walked up to the king and he said, O king, hold off destroying this people as long as I put my head under this water and am under the water, hold off killing the people. And the king scoffed at him and said, fine, I'll stop killing the people for as long as you're under the water. So this teacher jumped under the water and they waited and they waited and they waited and the teacher never came back. And he said, what is going on? Somebody dive under there and find out where this man went. And they dove under the water and they found that this teacher had tied his hair to the roots of the bottom of the pool and had died. And all the people escaped and were not killed by the king. That's maybe an, a better example to ex- express Jesus' sacrificial death in our place, where they would value that, that sacrifice. There is just so many ways that Buddhism is the antithesis to Christianity because there's no absolutes. It's all relativism. There's, there is no only one way. And um, there is no final death. There was no creation to the world. All of these are things that they, you have to turn around. You have to explain for them to understand the Christian worldview that there is a, going to be a final death, that you will not rise again from the dead. Um, you'll only rise once, and then after that is the judgment. So, I'm not an expert by any means, but those are ways that I've been alerted to their worldview is quite a contrasting worldview with ours. I don't know if that fully answers your question. Yes, sir. So this past year, yes, I, was, I would say very unlikely before this, but we've seen Buddhist monks burning churches and killing people for no reason simply because it's available now. You can do it. It's a lawless country right now. 
um, previous to COVID and all this, I talked to a pastor, a young man, who said he grows a, a crops to support himself and his family. He sells the crops in the village, and that's his income. He said often about a couple, every so often the Buddhists would come through and just wipe out his entire crop and just level his field. It was, that's the type of persecution that's very, very common for the locals. They would never do that to Westerners. They highly value Westerners and are happy with Americans being in their country, whatever their religion. But the locals feel this often and regularly. If you think of a couple more, while I show you this, I'll take a couple more questions after this. But I ask kids what they think this is. Well, you probably already know. If, you've, if you know Hung Kim, you know what these are already. Does anybody know the word, what these are called? Basos. These are called basos. And this is a distinctly masculine outfit. And you, maybe you've seen Hung Kim wear it. But um, this is from the Upu Chin people. And all the men will, not all the men, but most of the men will wear this, not just for cultural days, but for, for every day, for working in the fields, for building buildings, for even preaching. And thankfully, they don't wear suit coats or ties. It's a little bit too hot for that. But they would wear this. They would knot it up front like this. And this is distinctly masculine. And a woman would never wear this. And this is called a basso. The women wear a lungi that's pinned up on the side. But the basso represents who you are and where you're from. The colors and the pattern are distinct to your ethnicity. And so is your language. And so people often ask me, should we just leave the Bible in the Burmese language and teach them Burmese. And I say no, because the Bible in Burmese will always be a foreign language to them, and it's going to be a foreign God if they have to learn Burmese. We need to ensure that they can speak to God in their local language, because that's the language that they, is most intimate to their heart, is where that they speak to their mother with, they speak to their wife with, they pray in, and they need to be able to speak to God in their language. So this represents how closely tied their ethnicity and language is because it identifies who they are. Okay, any final questions? We're going to take some time in God's word, unless you have one more question. Yes, sir. Yes, it does. So families do live together, and this is um, something that I don't understand enough about, but when the father converts to Christianity, he announces to his family, this is typical in, in the broader Christendom in Myanmar, when the father converts to Christianity, he says, we're now all Christian, and that's final, they're now all Christian. And it's just an, a pronouncement by fiat, they're now Christians. And so that's a problem as well. But it's very common for multiple generations to live in a one-room house. That's very, very common. So we need to emphasize how it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's, that's an important thing to overcome. All right, turn in your Bibles to Colossians. Turn over in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're going to look just briefly. We'll get a running start, but we'll just focus in on one verse today. Paul wrote the book of Colossians to a group of believers that were facing false teaching, that was saying that Christ is not enough, that they need to add something to their salvation. And Paul writes the whole book to address this fact, that Christ is preeminent. He is enough, and He's all that we need. And so to this 
effect. Paul writes his book to teach us how to be like Christ. And he turns very practical in chapter 3. And if you know Paul, you know that he loves the phrase, put on and put off. The metaphor of clothing. Putting off your old sinful behavior and putting on new Christ-like behavior. Because Paul emphasizes how if, if we are in Christ, and that phrase appears over and over in the book, I would encourage you to, to, to put an asterisk every time you see that phrase, in Christ, it appears so often. When we are in Christ, something has to look differently. Our lives ought to change. And be, they cannot be the same any longer. And so in chapter 3, Paul turns very practical in his instructions to the church. And he says that we ought to mortify your members which are upon the earth. In verse 5, chapter 3, that word mortify is put to death. It's a very strong word. Stomp it out. Kill it. And don't let these have any place in your life. And he says in verse 8, put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, out of your mouth. Then in chapter, verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Put on, therefore, the, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, that's simply just compassion, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now, if you read this list from verse 12 to 14, and if you only read to verse 14, and if you're honest with yourself, you're going to be discouraged. Because if we honestly assess our lives, we are not as loving, kind, compassionate, forgiving as we ought to be. If somebody, if I were to ask your friend, is this person kind, loving, compassionate, do these attributes describe you? And if you, what would your friend say about you? I'm afraid that Somebody would not use these attributes to describe me if they were talking about me. We are not as kind, loving, compassionate as we ought to be. But Paul uses very direct language. He says, put these on. You be kind, compassionate, loving. It doesn't need any sermon to explain what Paul is saying here in these first three verses. But what Paul is not saying is you just need to have more grit, more determination, and you can become like Christ in your own strength. It may look like that at first blush, but that is not what Paul is saying here. Because, read on. Look at verse 16. This is where we'll spend our time this evening. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, up to this point, Paul has been using very direct commands to us. Put on is a direct command to us. It's a second person command. You put on love, compassion, meekness, humbleness, kindness, forgiveness, all of these things are direct commands to us to be doing. Now Paul changes his language in verse 16 to something we don't have in the English language. In the Greek language, it's called a third-person command, a third-person imperative. It's a command to something else to do the action, but it's still directed to us, just like the other commands were. But the command to change the command here is for something else to be working. The change comes from outside of us. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to become more like Christ. My brother-in-law lives in California, and he just has a very small plot of land. But his three little girls wanted to have chickens. They wanted to have their own fresh eggs. So they bought several chickens and put them in one big pen. And they, the girls thought of them as pets almost. But chickens do what chickens have always done. 
and that is peck each other. There's a pecking order every time to chickens without question, without exception. There is always going to be a pecking order. And these girls, they see this, these chickens, they say, oh, daddy, we want to teach the chickens to be kind and loving to each other. They're pecking each other. You can't take change a chicken's nature. You can't teach them to be kind and loving and compassionate. Chickens will always have a pecking order as they've had for generations. The same is true for our hearts. We can't change our own hearts any more than a chicken can change its nature. See, the power to change does not come from within us. It comes from without us. So this is why Paul uses this language. He says, you have got to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let or allow God's word to work in your heart and your life, to change you, to mold you into his image. Because that because the power to change comes through God's word. He uses the word dwell there. The word dwell is the idea of you occupying a house. It's a metaphor. In the same way that you occupy your house, God's word ought to occupy your heart. Your house is where you're, it's most familiar to. It's the center of all your activity. It's where you come home to and, and you describe it as, I'm at home now. Is God's word at home in your heart and in your soul? This is the metaphor Paul is using. It's got to dwell in you. It's got to reside in you. It's got to be so familiar to you. It's as familiar as your own living room couch. This word is used of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us in Ephesians. But it's also used in Romans 7.17 to describe sin dwelling within us. Something is always dwelling in your heart, whether of Christ or of sin. And Paul says in Romans 7.17 that no good thing dwelleth in me. We naturally don't have any good dwelling within our hearts. We've got to have God's word dwelling in our hearts, replacing the sin that naturally dwells there. So Paul says, let God's word dwell in you. But he says, let it dwell in you, not just in a small amount, not just barely exist, but to dwell in you richly. This is the idea of extravagantly or abundantly. He wants God's word to dwell in us in a large amount. We travel all over the country and sometimes we pass very extravagant mansions where people have poured all their wealth and their money into this, this, this home that they're never going to take with them after they die. But it's a very elaborate home. They richly, lavishly furnish their home. This is the idea that Paul is getting after here. We have got to lavishly furnish God's word in our hearts. We've got to spend time. We've got to make it important to us. You, you know what's important to people by how they spend their money. God's word has got to be important to us. It's got to dwell in our hearts richly, he says, not just in a small, meager amount. He says, when God's word dwells in you this way, it will transform your life. You will have the power to become more loving, kind, compassionate, and long-suffering, forbearing, forgiving. These attributes will begin to describe, describe you as God's word transforms you. But he just doesn't leave it there. He just doesn't say, let God's word dwell in you, and then walk away. Paul is very practical, and that's what I appreciate about his epistles. He says, let God's word dwell in you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Paul gives us two ways that we ought to let God's word dwell in us. 
First, through teaching and admonishing one another, and then second, through singing songs with grace in our hearts to the Lord. These are two ways that are modifying, they're describing how God's Word ought to dwell in us. So first, this teaching and admonishing one another. These are what Paul is doing in this epistle right here. He's teaching and admonishing others. This teaching describes both formal teaching, but also informal teaching, like a conversation. And he's not saying, you, he's, he's not just addressing pastors. This is for every one of us to be doing. God's word has to dwell in us so that we're able to now teach one another God's word. But it's also a two-way street. We have to receive this teaching from one another so that God's word dwells in us more fully. This isn't just a verse reference. You tell people, this is God's word for you. And I'm going to tell you what to do. No, God's word has been transforming your thinking so that you are able to give people the truths from God's word just naturally. As you hear their situations, they tell you, this is what I've been struggling with. And you say, instead of giving your own opinion, your own, our own foolish opinion, we can give people truths from Scripture, even if we don't have a verse or reference. And I would argue that he's simply describing a, a conversation that's saturated with God's word. He says this word admonition is the idea of warning them against a, a wrong behavior. It's counseling them. So this is the first way we need to be, we need to be equipped by letting God's word dwell in us. We're equipped to teach and admonish one another. This is not just the pastor's job. This is for every one of us to be doing. And when we allow that to happen, people are able to then teach us and admonish us as well. So that's how God's word dwells in us. And it's also an expression of that it is dwelling in us. And secondly, that we ought to be singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, if Paul was up here and he said, dwell on God's word, and if you were a first century Christian, you would not have a Bible. All those Bibles would be gone. You don't have a Bible in your home, and yet Paul is telling you, dwell on God's word. What would you say? What would you do? Well, that was the situation of the first century Christians, and what they did was turn to songs. They memorized portions of Scripture they maybe had one copy of Scripture per congregation or a portion of Scripture. And they would memorize. They would put it to music. And as they're working in the fields and as they were slaving away, they would be singing Scripture. It would be dwelling in their thoughts. We need to be singing Scripture as well. We need to be a let songs that are saturated with truths from God's Word affect our thoughts and our feelings. Because songs have an important ministry that sermons and just simply talking cannot have. Songs turn our feelings from ourself back to God when we're focusing them on Scripture, when we're singing Scripture in our hearts. And when that happens, we will sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, he says. That word is grace for gratitude there. This idea of grateful for all of God's grace in your life and all that he's poured out on you. This is, this is how it works. As we sing of God's grace, we naturally have gratitude for all that he's done. We naturally have a desire to read more of what he's done. And then we read more of his grace and we go back to singing more. Singing is an expression that God's word's been filling your heart, but it's also a way to further fill our hearts with scripture, to further dwell on scripture. Let God's word dwell in you in this way. And then you'll be transformed into Christ-likeness. You'll have the power to love have humbleness, have kindness, meekness, long-suffering, not in our strength, but in God's strength by allowing Scripture to dwell in our hearts. And that's what we pray, not just for Myanmar, but for every one of us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, 
Thank You so much for Your grace in our hearts in saving us and redeeming us and making us Your child. God, cause us to love You more. Help us to, to be faithful at proclaiming the Gospel and at using the, the Bible that You have given us and using the precious gift that it is. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen. Thank you, Caleb, for that. Uh, this is a, a couple that I believe God is, is going to use uh, for his glory. Uh, you can sense the passion, the love they have for the people of Myanmar, the love for the gospel, and uh, God has, has blessed them. He has received great training, and uh, we hope to uh, be able to be a blessing to them as we, uh, as we give to them and as we consider them as the Lord uh, would guide and direct as we pray about uh, our missions budget for next year. Uh, one of the missionaries that we will be uh, considering uh, as we hope to, Lord willing, expand on our missions budget uh, next year. We're praying and seeking the Lord's will in that. Uh, but they will be at the back table. Uh, Derek's going to come and lead us in a closing uh, song, Jesus Saves, 692. If you'll stand and you'll grab your hymnals. And 692, verse number 2, Derek's going to come and lead us. And if God's doing uh, work in your heart, even tonight, about missions, about the gospel about our, even our, our personal soul winning. Uh, we can do business with the Lord even tonight as we sing. And I uh, hope that you'll visit with the Wagners afterward. But now Derek's going to come and lead us in this stanza as we close. Verse number two, 692. Wafted on the rolling tide. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, tell to sinners far and wide. Jesus saves, Jesus saves, sing ye islands of the sea, echo back ye ocean caves, her shall keep her jubilee. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Thank you so much for your faithfulness. It's been a wonderful day in the Lord's house. Next Sunday uh, evening, uh, we will have uh, uh, Brother Doug Lowry, Diane Vector's brother. Uh, he'll be speaking in the evening service. They're going to be in town. And uh, I asked him, as uh, he's a former pastor and evangelist, and have been corresponding back and forth. He'll be providing some special music, and then he'll be preaching in the evening service next Sunday. But it's been a blessing to be here. If you could continue to pray for Becky Cotterman's sister. Uh, she is uh, not doing well and uh, literally could be uh, any hour uh, that she passes into eternity. And so I know that's a, a burden on, on Becky's heart. And uh, so he'd remember her in prayer. And uh, otherwise, uh, we'll bow for prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God that has been so faithfully proclaimed in this ministry uh, to Myanmar that you've called uh, Caleb and Rebecca to. Lord, we pray that you will uh, Use them in a great and mighty way. We pray, Lord, that you will open doors for the gospel there. Thank you that we have the opportunity to uh, be a part, uh, a small part of their uh, deputation. And then, Lord, as we continue to support the Kims, uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the work that you are doing there in spite of all the hardships. And, Lord, I pray that it will once again burden us for the lost, that it will once again renew our commitment, uh, Lord, to reaching others, and that it will make us truly grateful uh, for what you have given us here and the freedoms and the privileges 
and the wealth and all that uh, you have blessed us with. Help us, Lord, to never take that for granted, but to, Lord, who much is given, much is required. And, Lord, I pray that you will be with uh, Becky and uh, her sister. Lord, I know this has been a burden on Becky's heart. We pray, Lord, for her sister now. Lord, we know that she is in your hands. We pray for your will to be done there. Lord, we pray that you keep us safe, guide us and direct us this week. Uh, Bless our witness and our testimonies for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you on Wednesday night.